1: Quick heads up here at the top. I am speaking to a pissed off actor who's on strike in this episode. And she's got words for people, four letter words. You've been warned. Leah Delaria may not be able to work very much right now, but she's got a whole lot of jobs. I'm an
0: actor, a stand up comic, a writer, a singer.
1: How long have you been in SAG AFTRA?
0: I've been in sag Astra since 1993. You had to be in SAG in order to do the Arsenio Hall show. Some people think that my next guest is too controversial for TV. Um, she's a lesbian stand-up comedian. Yeah. Yeah. So when I uh, was the first openly gay comic on a uh, television in America, um, that's how I got my SAG card. It's great to be here because it's the 1990s and it's hip to be queer and I'm a big dyke. Yes, I am. Yes, I am.
1: You know, I just rewatched that appearance because it's it is so seminal. And the only thing I could keep thinking was like, oh, my God, they put so much makeup on her.
0: Oh, my God, they put so much makeup on me. And at that time, I didn't have the wherewithal or the I didn't I didn't know I could say no. Yeah, let's put it that
1: way. Lee is one of those people you'd recognize on the street. But you might not know why. She's performed on Broadway. She's got an amazing voice. But she's always made a chunk of her living as a TV actor, with a lot of under-five roles. As in, under-five lines. She's been on Matlock, Law & Order, Broad City. You
0: live in New York City five years. You got bugs. Well, I do have some good news. I can't guarantee that I can
1: get them out. However, I can guarantee that I can't. So when the Screen Actors Guild walked out of negotiations with Hollywood Studios last week... Leah went looking for a picket line. Are you hyped for the strike? So hyped. Really?
0: Yes. This inequity in the streaming services and the pay that we get uh, has been up my butt for ten years.
1: If you want to know why actors are striking, Leah's a pretty good person to ask. Because after doing all those walk-on roles, she got cast as a recurring character in Orange is the New Black. Over the course of six seasons. Leah had this inside look at the dawn of the streaming era. What were you expecting out of that gig?
0: Well, we didn't have any. We didn't know what to expect out of that gig uh, because it hadn't been done before. If you know what I mean, it was brand new. This medium, the streaming media. I mean, it was like I remember when when my manager said it's for Netflix. I was like, you mean the envelopes that come to your door with movies in them? You know what I mean? We all said that.
1: It did not take long for Leah to figure out that she had lucked into an unexpected hit. She felt like a Jonas brother. She'd get off a plane and there would be people waiting for her with signs, screaming. Still, it took four seasons for her to get promoted to a series regular.
0: We were the horse that Netflix rode in on, as people say. At one point, a Netflix executive said to me that we were watched by more, that we were watched by more people than all the other shows on Netflix combined. That was said to me. Oh, shit. Yeah.
1: Was there a moment you got mad about all this? Oh, yeah. It was when
0: um, we were at a party. It was at Ted.
1: Ted Sarandos, the guy who's in charge of Netflix.
0: Yeah. The the head of Netflix, um, whose salary is over $22 million a year, um, said that we were more popular than Game of Thrones. And all of us kind of looked at each other at that point. That was a moment. That was a that was an aha moment for a lot of the actors on the show.
1: What were you kind of saying to each other with your eyes in that moment?
0: Why aren't we getting that money? Why are we not getting that money? You know, to him, it was a big deal to beat HBO. But he certainly wasn't paying us what people had paid on HBO.
1: To be clear, Leah did make money as an Orange is the New Black cast member. She knows she's privileged. But she had castmates who were forced to make different choices. One kept up her yoga business, another one tended bar, another worked as a nurse. Now, Leah says, she's ready to fight. Do you think the studios really understand how actors are feeling right now? Of course they they understand it,
0: but they don't give a fuck.
1: Today on the show, how Hollywood got blindsided by a double strike. First the writers, now the actors. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. This episode is brought to you by SAP. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI will not help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos To dig a little deeper into this double strike, I called up Alyssa Wilkinson, a senior correspondent over at Vox. She writes about entertainment. I asked her if she could explain the motivation behind the strikes in the simplest terms possible. Her response was
2: one word, technology. There's kind of two sides to this, two technologies. One is one that has very firmly already arrived, and one is one that's kind of just on the horizon. So the first one is streaming. We're all very familiar with streaming, of course. (laughs) Yes. And what we might not remember is that about 15 years ago, kind of just as streaming was starting to appear on the horizon, the feeling was kind of like, who's going to want to watch TV on their computer, (laughs) right? Turns out a lot of us. Turns out a lot of us, but a lot of the unions didn't quite catch how big of a deal streaming would be. And so they didn't negotiate for uh, residuals, which are kind of like royalties that are paid to people who make stuff for Hollywood. Um, They didn't negotiate to have them on the same level as what someone might get if their show is watched on cable. So that's a big oops. That's a big oops. And it's the kind of thing that the unions are very aware they don't want to happen again (laughs) and also very aware that they've been suffering the consequences. It's like extremely low, the kind of income that they earn from streaming TV shows and movies, which is, of course, everything now. Um, So that's the one that, you know, is kind of present with us that we're all familiar with. The one that's on the horizon is A.I., And certainly over the past year, I think most of us have become more aware of the capabilities of AI and also how those capabilities are evolving super quickly. For the writers, they understood that AI could sort of threaten to replace their jobs. Um, That's an even bigger deal for SAG-AFTRA. Actors know (laughs) that um, their performances that they've given can be replicated by computers. And furthermore, that uh, voice performances also can be replicated by computers and that AI is going to make all of this super simple and it will probably be used to eliminate jobs for many actors um, unless they kind of put their foot down and say, if you want to work with us, you have to guarantee that you're actually going to hire us. And not just take our likenesses and our voices and then use them without our consent and without paying us in perpetuity throughout the universe, which it turns out is basically what the AMPTP is arguing for.
1: The AMPTP is the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers. They're a trade organization made up not of people, but of major studios and production companies. Think Disney, Warner Brothers, Netflix. They're on the other side of the bargaining table for both the actors and the screenwriters. And the last time they were facing a double strike
2: was in 1960. It's kind of a funny story. (laughs) So um, at the time, what they were both bargaining for were residuals when a movie that they worked on was sold to a TV network, which would then broadcast it and earn money from ads. This sounds kind of familiar. Like the streaming thing. Uh Uh-huh, exactly. And again, it was technology, right? TV in 1960 was still kind of a newish thing. It was just people were kind of just becoming alive to how big of a force this really was going to be. And uh, the writers had gone on strike over this in January of 1960. And the actors joined them in March. Um, SAG was led at the time by a actor named Ronald Reagan. Hmm. And Reagan was a very... Effective negotiator and politician, even in 1960. And so he um, also was quite the labor activist um, on SAG's behalf at the time. And they got what they were asking for for the most part. There were some compromises made, but the residuals uh, were bargained for, and the writers eventually got theirs too. So sometimes the double nature of the strike, because that so firmly shuts down any production, and because Actors have so much visibility, especially compared to writers, um, there's a real effectiveness to that that might sort of be a multiplier on what a single strike can be.
1: Yeah, I was going to ask if there are any lessons from 1960 for the strikers this time around.
2: I mean, there's a couple reasons that this particular strike in 2023 is really, really different from that one. One of them is um, that there's just a lot more content out there that people could be watching. (laughs) And like reality TV exists, you know, all these kinds of things that just are newer innovations. And so it will take longer for people to notice the effect of the strike. And you sometimes need the consumer to take notice and the investors and shareholders especially to take notice. Um, of the effect before things start changing. So you're saying I'm going to have to miss my TV shows for a bit? You're already going to miss your TV shows, honestly. So I don't think a lot of people know this, but most productions have been shut down for a while because the Writers Guild has been very strategic about their picket lines um, and very, very organized. And crews uh, generally refuse to cross picket lines. So I believe... The number is something like 80 percent of productions in the U.S. have already been shut down. So your show is probably already delayed. Can you just give
1: me a TikTok of how negotiations broke down with the actors in
2: particular? It started to seem like it was becoming more of a possibility in the months leading up to first the writers contract expiring in late April and the writers beginning their strike. You started to hear SAG-AFTRA in particular talking about A.I., They were really worried about AI, and they should be. AI uh, arguably is more of a threat to SAG-AFTRA than even the WGA.
1: AI is more of a threat to actors because in some ways the fight's more personal. The idea that a movie studio could photocopy your face or voice and make content without you, it's alarming. And it's even more alarming when you consider that the vast majority of SAG-AFTRA's members aren't making a whole lot of money
2: most actors are basically just getting by. They're not going to be stars or millionaires. Those people um, could encounter a situation with AI where they're paid for their likeness. This is the proposal that the AMPTP brought to SAG-AFTRA, according to the Guild, that they would be paid a day rate, like one day, which is like a few hundred dollars tops, to be scanned, um, acting doing stuff, and then their likeness would be used to generate background actors in the future. So whereas if you watch an episode of Friends and you see people sitting in the background at tables drinking coffee, those are humans doing that. But in the future, they may not be humans. They may be replications of humans who were captured 30 years earlier. And this already happens all the time. Um, A lot of times, like a crowd scene, if you look very closely, is actually 20 people replicated across the screen a bunch of times.
1: You've said that you realized a few weeks or months back that AI was becoming the
2: sticking point. How did you realize that? Like, was there a moment? I saw some chatter. (laughs) This is always how these things happen. You see some chatter between actors on Twitter, right? Or you see SAG-AFTRA members kind of talking to the press maybe anonymously, um, about being worried about this. I was myself talking to a very famous actor, um, very, very famous actor in the back uh, room at a theater in early spring. And I was, we were talking about the strike and he was like, I don't see what the problem would ever be. And I said, well, they have hours of you (laughs) that they can just feed to a machine and then they never need you again. Um, And you know, you could sort of see a light bulb go on. It's just not the kind of thing that comes up every day for people who act for a living. Oh my gosh, you activated a famous person! I did. <laughs> I did. Well, more more than one, but he sort of stuck out in my mind. <laughs> and that man was Tom Cruise. No, <laughs> <laughs> I have never spoken to Tom Cruise directly. No, but it is someone everyone would know. Um, so you could see SAG after getting worried about this, and there was this hope. That, you know, well, we'll come to a a decision, you know, nobody wants a strike, we're just exiting this like really bad pandemic economic system for film and TV production, like everybody wants to be working. Yeah, COVID's kind of looming over all of this. That's right. Yes. And COVID was very expensive. You know, even if you could keep your movie or TV production running, you needed to have all these extra people to make sure that actors were safe on set. And so that's still very, very recent in most people's minds. Just before
1: the strike, this article came out in the trade magazine deadline and it laid out the studio's perspective on negotiations and a strike. Can you tell me about it and and how it Resonated in Hollywood?
2: So, this deadline article was wild to read um, because the article basically was about the WGA strike. And they said someone, some anonymous studio executive, said to the reporter that, um, you know, they're not planning on returning to the bargaining table with the Writers Guild until October, and that the end game is to, like, basically have them lose their homes and their apartments and come crawling back to us asking for work the language
1: in this article is just gross like one ceo is quoted as saying we're gonna let it bleed out
2: And you're like what (laughs) yeah so one way also to think about this is that there is more of a sense of being tech companies these days in hollywood than of being movie studios you know some of them literally are tech companies um Apple, Amazon, Netflix are tech companies. And the big studios have kind of pivoted themselves in that direction as well, whether it's Disney or Warner Brothers Discovery or whatever. And this is the language of tech companies. <laughs> you know, you kind of bleed your opponent out and then you buy them or something like that. So that's that's what it sounded like to me. Um, and it also sounded like kind of an ill-advised attempt to warn sag that we will do the same to you. And from... Writers and actors on Twitter, you saw some funny reactions where they were like, look, you already pay us pennies and we all have second and third jobs to begin with. (laughs) You know, you're not going to freeze us out as easily as you think. Um, You know, we'll see, I guess, what happens. But, you know, if you couple that deadline article with Bob Iger's remarks the next morning on TV, he's the CEO of Disney and he was saying that he just thought the demands were very unreasonable and unrealistic.
0: We managed as an industry to negotiate a very good deal with the Directors Guild that reflects the value that the directors contribute to this great business. We wanted to do the same thing with the writers, and we'd like to do the same thing with the actors. There's a level of expectation that they have that is just not realistic, and they are adding to a set of challenges that this business is already... You know,
2: there's a a kind of effort to say that the writers and the actors are just greedy, and... I think one of the stranger things or maybe more serendipitous things that have happened in this whole process is that I believe two days after the writer's contract expired and they went on strike, uh, details came out about CEO executive pay and how it's, you know, $26 million, $50 million. But I think for writers and actors, it feels very obvious that if we create the product that's making you so much money that you get paid that much money, then we should perhaps get part of that and not be having to work second and third jobs.
1: Yeah, my favorite response came from actor Ron Perlman, who did this TikTok where he he was basically like, Bob Iger, (laughs) we know where you live. Like, it was just, it was very (laughs) menacing. There's
2: a lot of ways to lose your house. You wish that on people. You wish that families starve while you're making 27 fucking million dollars a year for creating nothing. Be careful, motherfucker. Be really careful. It really—I mean, I would not want to. I would not want to tick off Ron Perlman. I think he actually deleted it at some point, but it very much lives on on the internet. Um, yeah, but I mean, you know, you, it's one thing to kind of make a bunch of writers mad at you and they write clever signs, um, but boy, when you get actors in the mix, like they kind of—they're ready for this moment, right? They are ready for their close-up and they are going to make the most of it. After the break,
1: just what are the studios thinking here? Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. I do want to take just a bit of our time and consider the strike from the studio's perspective Mm -hmm. because the entertainment industry is not doing great right now.
2: No, no, it certainly isn't. How would you quantify that or characterize that? So one one good example here is that the budgets of blockbuster movies have ballooned. Drastically, while also squeezing out the kind of mid-budget movies that you might see if you're thinking of like the great movies of the '90s, right? So where they're not they're not spending 100 or 200 million on them, they're spending 50 or 30 or something like that. Um, The bigger budget movies are designed to appeal globally. So the idea is we make this huge budget superhero movie that kind of we we think or we know has built in appeal and is going to make a baseline profit. And we're also going to ship it across the world and everybody's going to be into it. Um, And because those movies are kind of designed that way, they do make a lot of money or they were until very recently. And what it feels like we're starting to see is fatigue around that ordinary people not wanting to have to see 26 movies and three TV shows in order to understand what's going on in this one movie.
1: Hmm. Yeah, I went to Mission Impossible this weekend,
2: and before
1: the movie started, there was this little statement from Tom Cruise, like, thank you for being here.
2: I'm so glad (laughs) you
1: came to the theater. And I was like, what is happening?
2: Yeah. Tom Cruise is a big theater uh, booster. And no wonder. I mean, his movies do extremely well at the theater. And honestly, part of the reason the Mission Impossible movies do so well is that you barely have to know what the plot is going in, right? That's not the movie. The movie is stunts. That's why you're there. I love them. I think they're terrific. But um, So that's like one choice that really has driven the movie industry in the last 23 years. And when you think about it, if you spend... $200 million on a movie, there's still kind of a cap on how much profit you can make off of that. So that's one reason. Another is um, the pivot towards streaming as the place that content is going to mostly be. And so people feel like, oh, I don't need to go to the movies to see a movie. I'll just watch it when it's on my streamer in two and a half weeks that I already pay for. But again, I, you know I'm no math genius, but it doesn't cost a lot to subscribe to a streamer and it's far less than the cost of one movie ticket. Well, and now I log on to streaming
1: services and sometimes shows are just gone.
2: (laughs) Yes. So, yes. So Disney and Warner Brothers Discovery and several of these companies have been pulling back content off their (laughs) platforms and sometimes shows that just concluded. They're just removing them entirely. Um, And there's sort of a complicated economics to that. But basically, they get a tax write off. And then sometimes they license them to these freebie kinds of platforms that are basically just TV with ads, which we, you know, those of us who are old enough to remember watching TV with ads, um, you know, those those streamers exist now. So, yeah, obviously, something didn't work out the way that everyone was hoping. Yeah, I mean, I'm not arguing that someone like Bob Iger,
1: <laughs> would, like, has a moral heart high ground here. But it does seem like something's fundamentally broken. Is anyone trying to fix that? Because I don't think these negotiations can. Like, the negotiations are about money. But it seems
2: like there's a bigger ask here, which is, like, let's clean up this mess. right. Right. And really, the question is once you've kind of opened Pandora's box, can you st- stuff everything back into it and close it? <laughs> right. And in Hollywood, we've kind of been at this point before. So there was a moment in kind of the late 1950s into the 1960s where TV was starting to cut into film revenue and people were very worried about this. They, you know, they talked about it a lot um, that TV is going to kill movies, Uh, and the studios were turning out these big, bloated, like, biblical epics, um, musicals, historical epics, things that were just very expensive to make, and they weren't making the money back on them at the box office. And what happened immediately after that was the birth of New Hollywood, which is sort of these um, lean kind of youth culture movies that were shot very cheaply. Um, We can think of, like you know, Bonnie and Clyde, right, or Easy Riders or The Graduate or movies of that era where we still watch them and think of them as great works of cinema. Um, But part of the reason they were great works of cinema was that they were able to take some risks. And in some cases, they took risks without asking permission. The question right now, I think, is whether we're too far down the path to do that, or whether we have an economics that will support A new generation of creators and whether um, people are going to flock to risky movies the way that they used to. You know, as I was getting ready for this interview, I noticed that
1: you have been writing about looming technological changes in Hollywood for years. Like, I found an article you did in 2020 that looked at the same. Some of the same things Hollywood is striking over now, like AI. Yeah,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and you mm-hmm. framed what was going on as a kind of existential threat. Yes,
2: yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I have a I have an academic background in computer science, and I used to be a coder, so some of this stuff is just a little less scary to me. But when I when I wrote that article, what had happened. And this is very interesting to me. There's a series of AI programs that were being written at the time and, and shopped around to studios that would um, basically eat <laughs> a script and then spit out um, kind of like how much it might make. So it basically would just look at a screenplay and say what it thought it would make. And then you could plug in different stars to different roles and it would like approximate the what the budget should be and what your profits would be. And ironically, this is an AI that basically would sort of replace studio executives. (laughs) Like that's their job is to green light things. Um, And this just disturbed me on a lot of levels, one of which is the same problem that comes up every time we talk about AI, which is that it's going to be trained on historical data. And the historical data in Hollywood is very biased toward a certain kind of entertainment made by a certain kind of person, which is to say... Throughout Hollywood history, it's almost always been sort of white guys from privileged backgrounds. And so you would wind up seeing a series of decisions kind of reinforced by existing historical data. And that's the same thing that would happen with performances. I mean, if you just think about it, if you were to create an AI that was going to do a lot of the background work and it's being trained on existing performances. And that is going to slam the door shut on what we've seen really only over the last maybe 10 years, which is a conscious effort to widen the door and let more people in. And I think we could end up in a position where Hollywood regresses (laughs) to what it was, you know, 30 years ago. I mean, you've said previously that (laughs)
1: <laughs> CEOs of the studios are basically counting on audiences not caring about this. they like, just been like, eh,
2: sure. Yeah. A lot of people I talk to will say, oh, I, I hate watching computer-generated performances, or you know, oh, I've seen what a chat GPT can do. Like, I don't want to watch that. And I say, well, you know, we, we tend to think of the best stuff when we're trying to compare those things, <laughs> um, but really most of what's produced right now is done hastily, um, with under-resourced, kind of sloppily, and you might not notice the difference. And even if you do, I do think that they're betting on the idea that you won't care that much. You know, the, the basic attitude of a franchise-driven Hollywood is that you'll just be happy if you see your favorite people on screen or your favorite characters, and that having, like, a good plot or a great script or something like that just doesn't really matter. And I don't think that has to be true, but I definitely think that some of the high-up executives think that way. Alyssa, I'm super grateful for your time. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much.
1: Alyssa Wilkinson is a senior correspondent at Vox. And Leah Delaria, who you heard at the top of the show, she's an actor, comedian, musician, and three-time SAG Award winner. (laughs) Have you thought about what you'd put on, like, a sign? Oh, this, uh, I was thinking I was going to put, this sag fag needs a residual hike dike. Just to clarify, Slate's staff journalists like me and Vox's staff, like Alyssa, were all part of the Writers Guild of America. We are not striking, though. It's just the television and the screenwriters. We are not covered under their contract. All right, that's the show. What Next is produced by Paige Osborne, Elena Schwartz, Rob Gunther, Madeline Ducharme, and Anna Phillips. We are led by Alicia Montgomery with a little help from Susan Matthews. Ben Richmond is the Senior Director of Podcast Operations here at Slate. And I'm Mary Harris. Thanks for listening. I'll catch you back here tomorrow.